Hey, so it's uh, great to be here. For those of you who don't know who I am, if you've come in the last two weeks, my name is Mike Sayers. And um, as I have often said before, I'm the senior pastor that's come, if only by reason of my advanced age. Um, but I just got back from England. I told you uh, how I got there a bit, what, a couple weeks ago? And uh, let me just say that here's the weird thing. When I got asked to go speak in England, it was wonderful. I was overjoyed. I thought, this is cool. Yes. You know, I get to go overseas and I get to do what I love, talk about scum of the earth. Uh, the reason they invited me is, is that uh, in the Church of England, uh, most churches in England as well, uh, there's a huge gap in the 18 to 30-year-old demographic. And so they said, you know, come and talk to us about how to connect young people with, with church. Um, I, you know, for me, that's kind of secondary to connecting young people with Jesus. Uh, but, you know, we worked it out. And um, so, yeah, so, you know, so that was great. It was wonderful. I, you know, I've kind of been on a high about it for, for quite some time. It was easy to get excited. It was easy to say yes. That's the first part. The second part of the whole English journey starts when I get on the plane. Um, I'm a rather large guy. And, you know, since nobody in ministry is going to send you first class or business class, you know, I was stuck, you know, in a plane overseas for like eight hours, right? And... Um, you know me at all, you know I get slightly claustrophobic. So I'm in this plane. It's totally packed. Like, this plane had no extra seats. And so it's really hot, which makes it worse. And I feel cramped, and then I can't move around. And, you know, about three or four hours into the flight, you just can't find a comfortable position. And, um, you know, it's not so great because you're losing sleep. Like, when you get to where you're going... It's seven-hour time difference. So I got into London. Mary and I got into Heathrow about 12 o'clock their time, which felt like 5 o'clock our time. We hadn't slept. Well, Mary sleeps anywhere, but not me. And so get in the car, go an hour and a half to Cambridge, try and stay awake so that you can acclimate to the time change as quickly as possible. So you're exhausted, right? Well... My host apologized to me profusely for this, but he scheduled our first speaking engagement. The next morning, we had to get up at like 5.30 in the morning, London time. I mean, which felt like, I don't know, 10 o'clock at night or 10.30 at night, my time. And we got in the car and drove three and a half hours to a place called Hereford, Hereford where hurricanes hardly happen in Hereford. And uh, if you know My Fair Lady, uh, there's that song where Eliza Doolittle is trying to get her H's correctly. And so I went to Hereford. And um, that wasn't so bad. I mean, I actually did only spoke once there. Dave spoke once, my host. Uh, and then we drove the three and a half hours back to Cambridge. So, you know, the next day we head off, which wasn't bad. But I'm still suffering from the jet lag. We get up. We go touring around the country of Suffolk, 
and then you know quaint English villages with thatched roofed houses, stucco, Tudor, you know, all those kinds of weird things. You can see the pictures on Facebook if you'd like. Uh, just go to my Facebook page. I have Married Old England, like part one, part two, and part three. Feel free to take a look at them. I didn't bring them to show you because I thought I'd be bored. Uh, but if you want to take a look, um, I took a lot of, you know, architecture, landscapes, a couple people here and there. Um, but, you know, they're there for you to see. We went on traveling. For the first seven days I was there, I spoke in six different cities. We traveled 1,000 miles on the wrong side of the frickin' road. I mean, there's a couple times I totally freaked out. It's like, because you're sleep deprived, you're taking a left-hand turn, you know, and you see this oncoming car coming in the right lane, you're going, whoa, <laughs> like that, which amused my host to no end. He teased me about it the rest of the time. By the time it was over, I had screamed like a little girl. You know, so it just got worse as time went on. So, um, you know, most places I spoke at least twice, if not three times. Most places we went to were like between an hour and a half and three hours away. I was, by the time eight days was over, the first eight days, including the day I got there, I thought, why did I come here? Like, what are they doing to me? This is grueling. I really, honest to God, I was going like, I, I, I don't want, and plus there's the whole disconnect between cultures. The British are very staid, very formal people for the most, at least the English are, not the Scots, but the English are. And, um, and they're, uh, or, or the Irish, and, and they're just kind of um, sitting there, right? And I, I don't know whether I'm connecting or not. And I'm looking for some, somebody, smile, laugh when I tell a joke, do something, you know. Um, fart, I don't care, do anything to let me know you're alive. Um, and um, so worked on that as time went on, tried to hone that. After a while, I was being interviewed by my host, and that seemed to go real well. We played off each other. Um, so honestly, the middle was exhausting. And then there was the end. We finally had a few days to go and to be tourists. Uh, Mary and I, you know, went to London. We took in a play. We went in the open-air double-decker bus tour at night, sitting in the back like a couple teenagers in a convertible, uh, taking photos all around London, and um, stayed in this pretty posh hotel just close to St. Paul's Cathedral. Went to St. Paul's Cathedral. That thing is mammoth. It is Huge. I've never seen a church that big in my entire life. And uh, so I went to an evensong service there. So the British Museum was incredible. You know, I'm looking at the friezes from the Parthenon and uh, all sorts of different. Rosetta Stone was there, Egyptian mummy kind of stuff. It was really amazing. So the last few days were this kind of glorious end, right? So this is my trip to, to England kind of euphoria at the beginning, short-lived, this long, tedious middle, right? And then the kind of glory days right at the end. And so uh, I term my sermon, is the title available? Don't give up in the wide, weary middle of your long book of life. Kind of taking a you from David Wilcox, those of you who know him and know his songs. 
Don't give up in the wide, weary middle of your long book of life because I come back and I'm supposed to preach in this passage and lo and behold, I'm making all sorts of connections between my experience in England and the passage you're supposed to read today. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Philippians chapter 3, starting verse 12. Let's see what the Apostle Paul has to say about the wide, weary middle of your Christian life. Because isn't it true that when you first meet Jesus, there is this euphoria, there's this kind of excitement, you're looking forward to it, like I was looking forward to going to England, everything is coming up roses, it's wonderful, yay, it's going to be awesome. Jesus gives me abundant life, you know, all this in heaven too, this is going to be amazing. And then you get to live in your Christian life, right? And it's kind of hard And then sometime at the end of your life, you know, you get, you die, you go to heaven, right? <laughs> you, uh, you meet Jesus in the clouds if, you know, he comes before you die. So you have this kind of really cool part at the beginning, this long, exhausting middle of your Christian life, and at the end, you get to go to heaven. That's why I think most churches, most people, and us, when we're in our most vulnerable places, we tend to concentrate on the beginning and the end because those are the parts we like the best. You know, we just get saved and re-saved and re-re-saved and re-re-re-saved. You know, every time you go to a Christian camp or a church service where there's an altar call because, you know, that's the part we know how to do and it's fairly easy. Or all we want to talk about is the great by and by, being in heaven. Because the middle sucks. The middle sucks a lot of times. It's what Leah talked about several weeks ago when she said, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's in the middle. And that's what Paul starts to talk about right here. Verse 12. He's right in the middle of the wide, weary portion of his Christian life. Not that I've already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal now, what's he talking about? Remember uh, last week, Dave Mazur was here, and he talked about knowing Jesus, about knowing the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. That's what he wants. That's the goal, to know Jesus, to be one with him, to know him intimately, to know him like, like no other. Because that's what I want and so the Apostle Paul then comes into this line, and he says, not that I've already obtained all this. And really, actually, the words all this are not in the, in, the, in the Greek. They're just put there to help us understand what he's talking about. What he says is, not that I've already obtained or have already arrived. I haven't arrived yet. See, we use that. It puts the, the emphasis on the journey, not on the end goal. I, I haven't arrived, he's saying. Now, this is amazing. Here's a guy being persecuted for his faith. He's in jail when he's writing this. He's been dubbed the apostle to the Gentiles, which is a pretty big deal. All right? I mean, you have the Jews, who are a very small part of the earth's population, and then, you know, you got 11 guys mostly concentrating on those people. The Apostle Peter, 
you know, goes off to the Gentiles, it seems, with Cornelius, and he ends up in Rome probably later on, according to church history and legend. But for the most part, you know, it's, it's a Jewish church, and then Paul's the apostle to everybody else, the whole rest of the world. I mean, that is a pretty amazing job description. And then on top of that, you know, he, he writes the Bible. And I'm pretty proud because, you know, I wrote a book called Pure Scum, but I'm not like, I mean, I didn't write the Bible. I mean, writing the Bible, like most of the New Testament, you're going like, okay, that's pretty impressive. And you've been doing this for like probably decades at this point in Paul's life. He suffered all sorts of hardships for the sake of the gospel, and yet he says, I haven't arrived. I haven't arrived. Incredibly humble guy. Incredibly humble guy. And he's telling us the truth because he hasn't arrived. He said, I haven't arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that but which Christ, Jesus, took hold of me. In other words, I'm trying to apprehend whatever it is I have been apprehended for. God's got a plan for me. I met him on the road to Damascus. Jesus knocked me off my, my horse and blinded me, and it was in a miraculous meeting. I saw Jesus in a vision face to face. And from that moment on, I've been his. He grabbed me. I'm firmly in the palm of his hand. I cannot be taken out. In the middle of that, I'm trying to get my arms around Jesus. I'm trying to hold him. I'm trying to figure out what it is he's got for my life. That's the tension that Paul is in. That's the tension that you're in. That's the tension that I'm in. Is to be apprehended by God and spend the rest of our lives trying to figure out what it was he wanted and trying to get our arms around it. Verse 13, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. There's that Really cool end part. You ever think about this? There's not a lot of effort at the beginning. There's not a lot of effort at the end. In the middle, Paul says it's like a grueling race. We don't use sports metaphors very often at scum because, well, we want to be the one church where you don't have to be an athlete to understand the scriptures. <laughs> But when the scriptures use an athletic metaphor, we have to pay attention. I mean, maybe you were in PE class in junior high or high school, and they forced you to do the runs that you weren't ready for. <laughs> I remember, you know, trying to get out of a PE credit, so I think I signed up for cross country or something. Oh, my Gosh. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know I had asthma until I joined the cross-country team. You know, they could hear me coming, like wheezing, you know, down the road. Two miles. It just didn't work. 
But maybe you've been there and you know what it feels like, you know, when your side starts to hurt. And all you want to do is just fall down on the side of the path and lay there until the feeling goes away. You know, that's what you want to do. And that's what the Christian life is like in the wide, weary middle. Sometimes you just want to fall down on the side of the road until the pain goes away. Oh, God. Really? Really? Get up and keep running and striving for Jesus. Now, this is an interesting verse because people have misapplied it a lot. Forgetting what is behind, that part. Forgetting what is behind. Now, what is Paul talking about when he talks about forgetting what is behind? He's talking about what he was referring to earlier in the chapter when he was talking about his pedigree, his Jewish heritage, all of his accomplishments. In Judaism, he's saying, forget that crap. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. It's, it's all lost to me. I don't, I don't care about it. I, I'm forgetting anything that I've done in my own power in the past that has won me any kind of, of, of standing in the eyes of people. I don't care about that stuff. I want Jesus. That's what he's talking about. Forget about all your accomplishments in the past. Don't stand on those. They don't, they're, they're, they're skivala. But what we try to make it say is, I'm going to forget about all the crap in my past. I don't want to think about what happened to me or what I did. I'm a Christian now. I'm forgetting what's behind, and I am focused on the goal of Jesus Christ. And that is psychologically bankrupt, spiritually Well, I want to, it's just bad. Because here's the deal. First of all, that's not what Paul meant. Second of all, if you don't remember the past, it haunts you when you least want it to come back. It bites you in the butt. I don't want to go back there and think about the people that I hurt, the words that I said, the terrible things that I did to people. I'm a Christian now. I'm just going to go forward and serve and love Jesus. No. 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 That's not what Paul's talking about. Go back. Make amends. Ask forgiveness. It may not just be the things you did in your past. Maybe it's the things that were done to you. Somebody invaded your personal space. You were sexually molested. You were lied to. You were taken advantage of. Somebody stole from you. You don't just forget about that. You bring it forward with you. If you haven't dealt with it in the proper way, it will come back to haunt you. And it'll be like someone tripping you up on this race toward Jesus.
What's the proof that we've dealt with those things in our past? We can talk about them. We can talk about them. If you can't talk about it, you probably haven't dealt with it. Now, I'm not saying you got to talk about it with everybody. Some things you don't want to talk about with anybody but a few safe people. But if you can't talk about the way you used to steal and how God stopped you and convicted you one day and how you went through a repentance process and how you tried to return the things that you stole, then that will come and that will bite you in the butt on your trek toward Jesus and you will fall on the side of the road when you want to keep going. So Paul's not talking about forgetting that stuff. That's got to be dealt with. Paul talks about it. In the same passage, he talks about how he was a persecutor of the church. He helped to, to, to kill Stephen, one of the first deacons in the church. He was going and arresting Christians. He's open, talking about it, saying, you know this about me. You know how God changed my heart. All glory and praise and honor to God who has delivered me from that kind of a terrible lifestyle. You see, all the glory goes to Jesus. If you talk about your past appropriately, if you can't talk about it, start. And don't misapply this verse. Because he's talking about forgetting the cool stuff you did back there. Not the hurts. You've heard me say sometimes it's a good idea to always have a hall of shame somewhere in the back of your head. It keeps you in touch with Jesus. With your need for him. With your need for forgiveness. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me, heavenward to Christ Jesus. Verse 15, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. What kind of view is that? Well, number one, that you have not arrived that you have not arrived. If you meet a Christian who says, I don't sin anymore, and there are Christians out there who say they no longer sin, that person is not mature. That's all there is to it. Now, I doubt that there's anybody here in this room who would say, I'm sinless. We're just not like that. We call ourselves scum of the earth for crying out loud. You know, we know better than that. But here's the rub. That's a British phrase, by the way. Here's the rub. We act like we're sinless. And that proves that we're immature. This is what I mean. Let's say you're married. And your spouse comes to you and points out something that you're not doing well. 
What is your first reaction? Is it to place the blame on your spouse? Well, you know, if you weren't such a jerk, if you weren't provoking me all the time, I wouldn't be acting that way. It's your fault that I'm acting that way. Because if you didn't act that way, then I wouldn't act that way because I, in the core of my being, am sinless. And you're the reason that I'm a sinner. Just see what I'm saying? Like, we don't claim to be sinless, but we act like we're sinless. Or we we change the subject very conveniently. It's like, what, you're going to accuse me? What about what you do? Because you're worse than me, actually. If you take a look at the scale of sins, my skin is my sin is right here, and your sin is like way worse. So we're going to take the spotlight off of me. We're going to put it on you, and that sin that I, you know you're not dealing with. So, in, in effect, we're saying we're sinless, or at least we're less sinful, right? We guilt trip people. We manipulate them. We get angry so they shut up. We, 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 we freeze them out so they shut up. We, you know, do the ice man or ice queen bit. Because we don't want to deal with the sin that's in here, in ourselves. It just shows we're immature. That's all it shows. We're, we feel like we've arrived in that regard. And you haven't. Now, it works this way if you're not married, if you're single. And guess what God uses in your life if you're single? Because he doesn't have a spouse around. He uses the church. He uses the people in your church, the ones who are supposed to be loving Christians who unconditionally are supposed to wrap their arms around you any time that there's something wrong in your life. Those are the people he used. It's brother Brillo pad and sister sandpaper are the ones that he places in your life to rub off those tough edges. There will always be those people. So you don't get out of it if you're single. You might get away with it a little bit longer, as long as people don't know you, as long as you stay anonymous in the church, as long as you're not part of a small group, as long as you just come and fellowship with the back of somebody's head on Sunday night for about 45 minutes to an hour, and then you leave, you're fine. Nobody knows you well enough to get on your case about your sin. So what should our response be to people who come up to us, whether they're church members or spouses, and point out our sins? This is what we should say. You're right. I need to look at that. Please forgive me. God is not finished with me yet. I'm under construction. And when somebody does something that totally horrifies you in the church, your response should be, well, that's what I expected. You're a sinner, same as me. God is working on his boat. That's how it should go. Those of us who are mature should respond in that way. 
And if on some point you think differently, that too, God will make clear to you. So, you know what? Paul is giving room here for different interpretations of the way this all works out, this sanctification of the church. He says, doesn't have to be just my way. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that God does this, and and God will bring it to your attention, and uh, God will make it clear to you what's going on in your life. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. And what have we already attained? Being grabbed by Jesus. You will never be free of his grasp. Not angels, not demons, not life, not death. Nothing can take you out of the palm of his hand or prevent you from being loved by him. Nothing. Don't lose that. Don't lose that. In the wide, weary middle of your Christian life, when you feel like you want to die, don't lose the fact that Jesus loves you. That he died for you. That he grabbed you at some point in your life and made you his own. If everything else is falling apart, hold on to that. Don't lose it. It's a safeguard to you. Live up to that at least. Don't deny the faith. Don't deny Jesus. Remember what he did. The bane of human beings is that they forget. How many times... Do we hear in Scripture, remember, remember, do not forget, do not forget. Don't lose that part. I mean, it kills me as a pastor when somebody says I'm no longer a Christian. I tried that Jesus thing. It didn't work out for me. And what really happened was is life got a little bit too tough. I mean, a few too many people died that were close. Their heart got batted around by people they trusted. Someone that was supposed to stay with them forever is left. And so they just tube the whole thing. Don't forget. Live up to what you've already attained. You've been grabbed. You're, you're heaven-bound. Then he goes on in verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Okay, he's just gone from being like the most humble guy ever to saying, okay, look at me. Look at me. Oh, let's take a look at Paul for a second. The dude's in jail again. He's been beaten, stoned for his faith. He's been shipwrecked. There have been murder plots against his life. He's saying, I keep pressing on to win the goal. I haven't given up. I'm going to keep going. Who in your life keeps going no matter how bad life has gotten. This is why we loved the Rocky movies back in my day. It wasn't because Rocky won, because he didn't win in Rocky won. 
Rocky number one. He, he lost, but he wouldn't give up. He just kept going out there and getting the crap beat out of him. And he kept standing there. Who in your life, who in your Christian life have you seen the devil beat to bloody shreds and keeps walking, keeps following Jesus? You know some people. I could name names right now, but I'm not going to. You know some people. They've been here. They are here. People who will not quit following Jesus, no matter how tough it gets. Those are the people to model your life after. You know, not the people who say, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Those people are full of crap. (laughs) Either that, or they're in the very, very first part, or they're about to die. (laughs) You know, one of those two ends, they're not in the wide, weary middle of following Jesus. Verse 18, For as I've often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Now, you wonder whether he's talking about other people in the church. Because this is a letter to a church, is it not? This is a letter that's supposed to be circulated around the church. Could Paul somehow be aware that there's people who are in church but not in Christ? You think maybe he ever read Luke's account of the gospel? Or Matthew's account of the gospel? Which, don't ask me about dates right now, but let's just suppose he had a conversation. And he heard about Jesus saying, you know, depart from me because you never knew me. The people who were saying, hey, Jesus, we, we did miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did all this stuff. And Jesus goes, I don't even know who you are. See, these people were in church, but they weren't really in Christ. And Paul was saying, watch out for those people. Watch out for those people. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. They don't see themselves as sinful. Rather, where they go when they're hurting is to their desires, their stomachs, their, their, their sexual organs, their, their ears, their eyes, their brains. They're being ruled by earthly desires. They have idols that they go to to get comfort from when things are going bad. They don't go to Jesus because Jesus doesn't matter. And when they're happy, do they go and they celebrate Jesus? No, they don't celebrate Jesus. What do they do? They just go out and party. Jesus is like a non-entity. He doesn't matter in terms of how they live their lives. Their glory is in their shame. They boast about things that are terrible. They boast about how many women they slept with. They boast about how much alcohol they could drink. They they boast about how many lies they can tell and how they can manipulate people all around them to do their bidding. They glory in the power they have over people that work for them. 
You see, there is a lifestyle that obviously is not heading toward Jesus. Paul's saying there's there's two kinds of people. There's the kind of people you watch go through the wide, weary middle of their lives on their way to Jesus. And there are people who are going toward their own desires and their own goals and not Jesus at all. And stay away from those people in terms don't 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 model those people. Those people who have uh, a air of religiosity, but there's no power there. They know all the sacramental liturgies, but there's no relationship with Jesus. Watch out for those people. And he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Okay, what's he parts he talking about now? The beginning? No. The long, weary, wide, middle? No. He's talking about the end now. There'll come a day when Jesus will transform us. And it won't be hard anymore. You won't have that craving. You won't need the crack. You won't have to be told over and over again how handsome you are or how pretty you are to make your day. It won't matter. You won't be trapped by this life. He will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. In this way. All the stuff we've been talking about. You want to make it through the wide, weary middle of your own book of life? Philippians 3.12 through Philippians 4.1. That's how you do it. Now let me say that it's not all pie in the sky by and by. I mean, that I think that God gives us benefits along the way. One of the benefits in my Christian life is you guys. I, I really like being here. I mean, I like being with you. I like the way you think about Jesus. I like the honesty, the authenticity. I, I like the, uh, the genuine nature uh, about conversations that take place around here. No one's trying to put on some kind of a holier-than-thou show, right? I enjoy the benefits of being here with you guys. I mean, there's a benefit right now. In the wide, weary middle of my own book of life, I get re-energized by being with you. I hope that you get re-energized by being with everybody else. I mean, there's, there's accountability, right? I mean, join a small group. If you haven't joined one, please join a small group. 
uh, go to a barbecue, meet some people, come out of your shell, try and become part of the community here, and, and your life will be a bit sweeter, even though it's difficult now. It just is. It's a hard, hard life in some res- respects, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. I mean, Mary and I are about ready to celebrate 34 years coming up on the 17th of this month. And, and if you would have told me 20 years ago that I'd be excited about that, I probably wouldn't have believed you. Because our marriage was incredibly hard, as you know. Okay, but I'm here to tell you that in the middle of this life, that, that I am enjoying the benefits of having worked through the wide, weary middle of our relationship. I mean, Jesus is not a slave driver. He makes it a little bit easier. You see what I'm saying? It's wonderful. So hang in there. Persevere. Don't give up. One of the greatest speeches that Winston Churchill, the former prime minister of England, ever gave consisted of nine words. And he basically said, never give up. Over and over again. Never give up. Never, 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 never. And then he sat down. And if you knew the history of Winston Churchill and how they had gone through World War II being bombarded by the Nazis and and almost, you know, capitulating and, and surrendering but not giving up, even though they were battered and bloodied and bruised, it was Winston Churchill who told the British people, all I have to offer you is blood, sweat, and tears. That's all I have. Until this war is over. It carried a lot of weight. What I'm here to say to you is, is in the wide, weary middle of your book of life, don't give up. Keep pursuing the goal. Jesus is ahead. But he's here to give us sustenance for the journey. He wants to make sure we don't fall over and lie on the side of the road. And so he's given us himself. Tonight we're going to celebrate communion. And, and communion is one of those wonderful ways we remember what Jesus has done for us in a very physical way. If you're, you know, one of those ADD people uh, and your mind is going every other way right now, at least with communion, you know, it's something you use your senses. You, you feel it. You taste it. You see it. You hear the words. This is Christ's body broken for you. This is his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. It's refreshing. It's an avenue of grace for us, communion is. Remember as we take communion that in the wide, weary middle of your own book of life, that Jesus is there for you every single day. You've already attained that. He's got you firmly in his grasp. The rest of it is you just trying to grasp that which you've been grasped for. You trying to apprehend that for which you have been apprehended. You trying to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of you. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much.
for your encouragement on this long and sometimes arduous journey. I look forward, Lord, to the resurrection of the dead. And I rejoice in my salvation. But thank you so much for providing us yourself and your body, the church, for the wide, weary middle. Help us as we worship you now. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.